Smarties, today we welcome Dr. Julie Kaplan to the podcast. She joins us to discuss how ADHD in girls manifests differently than in boys. She explains ADHD, how it shows up differently than quote unquote traditional ADHD, and why it so often gets missed in girls. She further discusses the insatiability of people with ADHD and what parents should look for in their learners if they suspect ADHD. Smarties, if you are interested in getting more support for your learners with ADHD and executive functioning issues or other learning interferences, go ahead and sign up for a phone call on our website, CAP Educational Therapy Group. My practice specializes in learners with ADHD and executive functioning issues, and you can sign up for a phone call at www.capped.therapy.com or my ed therapist, which is in Redondo Beach, California, and the website to sign up for a phone call is www.myedtherapist.com. Don't worry if you don't live locally to us. We work with learners all over the country and really all over the world. So go ahead and do that. All that information is in the show notes to this episode. We can't wait for you to hear what Dr. Julie Kaplan shares with us. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 171 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we are so happy to introduce our friend and colleague, Dr. Julie Kaplan. Hi, Julie. Hi, Steph. Hi, Rachel. Hi. We're so excited you're on, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, we've been wanting to do this episode for a hot minute. Yeah. So we're glad that it's happening. And that we get to share you with our audience. So let's start off and dig right into it. Why don't you explain who you are and what you do and who you do it for? Happy to do that. I am a licensed clinical psychologist in Los Angeles. I work for an agency called the Los Angeles Center for Integrated Assessment, or the lovely acronym LACIA, L-A-C-I-A. We're in West LA and we provide neuropsychological and psychoeducational evaluations for little ones, um, tweens, teens, young adults, emerging adults, all of the above. Fantastic. Doing the reports. (laughs) Doing all the reports. So one of the reasons we wanted to have you come on is because you know a lot about ADHD. I do. You know a lot about a lot of things, but we are on today to talk about ADHD. Yes. Will you share with our audience what you were telling me? Which part? I don't know. Wherever you want to start. Your explanation of ADHD. My brief overview. Sure. (laughs) Do whatever you want. A lot of people think of ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder as a deficit of attention. You know, you're unable to pay attention to things which is not quite the case. It's more of a dysregulation in the attention system that allows somebody to hyper-focus on areas of interest to an intense degree. And then being able to focus on things that are non-preferred or boring, it's incredibly challenging. So it's almost like the volume of your attention is turned up to 11. 
or negative. Fair enough. So we were talking about what we're going to say is girl ADHD. Yes. Quite a bit. And there's a reason why we're calling it girl ADHD rather than just ADHD, right? Because it's different. Right. So the interesting thing is that boys tend to be diagnosed way more often than girls in childhood with an attention dysregulation. But what is interesting is that research has found that ADHD is really not gender linked. So really, we should be seeing about 50-50 boys and girls getting diagnosed in childhood. But 50 to 75% of girls are missed. And when they are diagnosed, it's generally about five years later than boys. Why are they getting missed? So many reasons, Steph. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing. You know, girls have the same kinds of symptoms as boys. You know, to be diagnosed with an attention dysregulation, you have to meet minimum criteria in our Diagnostical and Statistical Manual, which is now in the fifth edition or the DSM-5. So to be diagnosed with it, you have to have a minimum amount of symptoms. And it's not split up based on gender in the DSM-5. However, the symptoms manifest differently based on how boys are expected to behave in society and how girls are expected to behave in society. What's an example of that? For example, girls are socialized to please others. You know, they may also pay higher penalties for not living up to social expectations. They are prototypical, daydreaming, spacey kiddo who's sitting in the back of the class and looks like she's shy and studious, but in fact is missing everything that is going on in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So this is a call that I frequently get at CapEd Therapy Group because we specialize in ADHD and executive functioning issues. And like everything you're saying, I see in real life, right? They're always older. They did fine. No teacher ever reported it. Maybe the parent more clued in who related more to the child would say, you know, I would ask every year. And they never said anything because they weren't disruptive in the classroom setting. They were compensating with intelligence, and then it emerged later on. It would be helpful for our audience to hear that in the DSM-5 now, there are different types of diagnoses, and I think the one that you're talking about that girls tend to get, or the ones that are diagnosed later, because sometimes it can be boys too, is the inattentive type, right? Right. So ADHD is an umbrella diagnosis, and it has three subtypes. There's the predominantly inattentive subtype, which, as you said, it's trouble with sustained attention, sustained effort, looking spaced out, zoned out, daydreamer, huge distractibility. You know, you're able to hyper-focus on the things you really like. And then a lot of trouble with executive functioning. So trouble with planning, time management, you know, you're always late. You can't estimate how long something should take trouble with both physical and mental organization. So the girls who have a backpack and a desk full of crumpled papers, for example, can't find their belongings when they need them. You know, trouble with procrastination, trouble with follow through, trouble with multi-step directions, things like that. And then there is the predominantly hyperactive impulsive subtype, which research shows that boys are much more impacted by this subtype. And it's usually when you have these symptoms that it is caught and diagnosed earlier because these symptoms are more overt 
you know, these are the behavior issues, the ants in your pants, you're bouncing off the walls, you're interrupting, you know, it's very obvious to other people that this is going on. And then there's the combined type when you have symptoms of both and you meet the diagnostic criteria for both. Something you said really struck me and you said it earlier on and I've kind of been thinking about it ever since, which is that almost ADHD is misnamed. It's not a deficit. What did you say? It was the dysregulation. A dysregulation of the attention system. Julie, every time I get a call, every parent will say they can't pay it, but they can pay attention to their video games for hours or something that's highly motivating and highly interesting to them. Sometimes it's an instrument. It just depends on that kid's interest, right? And I'm going to use that line and be like, it's sort of misnamed. It's not saying that there isn't an ability to attend. It's just... We're trying to teach kids to attend to the correct thing, correct in quotes, at the correct time. Right. And really, ADHD can be a superpower if you aim it in the right direction. 100%. We talk about that in the practice a lot with our kids, that oftentimes they are walking in defeated, low self-esteem. They are getting the message that they're not trying hard enough. And as we say all the time on the podcast, they're trying twice as hard and getting half as much out of it or have half as much to show for it. And so it's, we talk about channeling their stuff for good and not evil. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) I want to go back to something that you said, Rachel, how intelligence plays into the underreporting and minimization of symptoms in girls when they're younger, because when somebody is bright, they're really able to implement strategies to compensate for their deficits without really knowing that's what they're doing. So that's why for a lot of inattentive girls, they're not diagnosed until way later in life. And when you say way later, it's not just teenagers that are getting diagnosed. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking 20s, 30s, 40s. Yep. ADHD is highly heritable, right? So if a kiddo has it, there's a chance that one and or more parents also have it. And so, yes, like you see in your children things that you saw in yourself as a kid and suddenly realize, wait a second. (laughs) You know, I think this might be something that I've been struggling with for most of my life. I was always able to, you know, get through school fine, get through college, you know, work my jobs fine. but have had to put in so much more effort to get through these things than it seemed like my colleagues or classmates had to put in. Parents say that all the time. That's why we end up working with the parents too sometimes because they're seeing the shifts and the changes in their kids and they're like, I want these skills too. And maybe it's not a good idea, although sometimes it can be really great to have the kid be the one teaching the parent. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's, For the parent-child dynamic, if you're showing your kid your own vulnerability and you're willing to improve on something because you see that things are working better and kids will start to get frustrated with certain things with their parents. Like, yeah, my parent didn't read that email. You know they don't read email, Rachel. Or (laughs) they're constantly late. Right. I'm always late. Right. That becomes like a real triggering point for kids and so – When parents are able to show their own vulnerability with their kids and let their kids teach them or let us teach them, I mean, you're just modeling the growth mindset that you want your kid to have. 
Yeah, 100%. And when we talk about overcompensation, right? If somebody's always late, if they're bright and able to take cues from the environment uh, when they're older, you know, when their brain and frontal lobe are fully developed, they're going to unknowingly like mitigate these issues, right? They know logically that if they're late for a job, there's a potential that they could get fired. So knowing that you have trouble getting places on time, you set multiple alarms, things like that. Or knowing that, you know, you miss some auditory information because your mind is wandering, you combat that by doing something kinesthetically to get your brain to focus on what is happening around you. You know, you learn to outsource areas of weakness and then you lean heavily on your known strengths. So like if you're a visual learner, you use that to your advantage with visual cues, color-coded organization, et cetera, things like that. I definitely want to talk about the social impacts. The difference between girls and boys and the social impact is huge. Can I share a story that happened over the weekend? Yeah. And it's not ADHD related, but it was just something that I was sitting in a group of people. We were outside and safe. We were all eating. And I noticed that there was a teenage boy who had thirds of his plate, right? Like he was just eating a lot. And I was sitting there thinking, and I was like, even if I were hungry at his age, I never would have done that. And everybody was kind of commenting. It was like, oh, the growing boy type thing and like all that. I've been thinking about it for two days since that moment. It's like the messaging that he got, oh, this is the sign of being healthy and you're hungry and you're strong and, you know, he's a swimmer and you got to eat as opposed to the messaging of a girl, which was like, maybe just have like the hot dog and don't eat the bun. Like that was kind of the messaging that I would have gotten right at that age, right? Right. And I think that goes back to how boys and girls are socialized incredibly differently, even with all of the increased awareness these days. I was watching it happen and not participating because I don't comment on other people's plates and what's on their plate, but it was just definitely generational and it was just really interesting. I hear you. And girls in particular, as I said earlier, you know, they're socialized to please others usually. And that expectation and the pressure to conform to a certain standard can really take a toll and lead to potential future issues with mood disorders, you know, anxiety, depression, as well as, you know, potentially high risk behaviors like substance use. Yeah. So you and I were talking about some of those social impacts of things in middle and high school that are very, I want to say like for some girls, really traumatizing. Absolutely. So, you know, first we have to look at self-esteem. If you have felt inadequate throughout your elementary school years, you know, that's the developmental phase where you're starting to take in information from people other than your family, right? As to how successful and competent you are at the things that you do. So if you've spent elementary school, number one, working much, much harder than your classmates. Number two, masking all of the things that you're feeling because you are meant to conform to this particular expectation, then it makes sense that that would lead to lower self-esteem and feelings of inadequacy, you know, particularly if you perceive your classmates as really having their stuff together. 
and, you know, having things come way easier to them than they seem to come to you. You know, there's also really big feelings of overwhelm, especially by things at school, like large projects, lots of work, particularly when you have very weak time management skills. There's a lack of motivation for non-preferred things and a high motivation for preferred things. So, you know, this is where I get to talk a little bit about dopamine, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is our feel-good neurotransmitter. So when we do something exciting for me, you know, eat a piece of chocolate, <laughs> the anticipation of doing something pleasurable, when that happens, our neurons release dopamine and it travels and then lands on our dopamine receptors or landing pads, and then you feel good. In people with ADHD, there are 40 to 50% fewer landing pads for dopamine. Therefore, it takes a lot more of the exciting thing to feel satiated. And there's a lot less motivation to do things that don't feel good. Also, according to Dr. Ellen Littman, ADHD brains struggled to sustain the motivation to learn when the reward is small or far away in time. As a result, stimuli needs to be larger, faster, and more intense to gain the brain's undivided attention. This is something that parents really struggle with when they don't understand ADHD or the diagnosis, because we'll talk about a grade at the end of the semester is way too far off, way too abstract that's not motivating for your kid at all. And we need to circumvent that. So what would you say, I'm curious, Julie, to the families who are like, we don't want to motivate for things that they should be doing. Like the expectation in our family is that you're going to do the homework. And let me tell a little story. I've told it on the pod before. So when my brother and I were growing up, I enjoyed playing piano. He did not. He would get a Star Trek toy for every good piano lesson he had. Julie, I got no toys because I would just have a good piano lesson. And so like we were different kids 18 months apart. I still hold on to this. And obviously, I didn't want a toy. I wanted a book. Like I wanted a Babysitter's Club book, right? Oh, I hear you. Yeah. (laughs) Who didn't want a Babysitter's Club book back then? 100%. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, I'm just thinking about it sort of in a broader context of like, you have to motivate different kids and different kids have different currencies. And like, it was important to our parents that we play piano. And I mean, to this day, he's not that interested in it where I'm still interested in it. So what do you say about that intensity? Like, I was getting the dopamine release from a job well done. He was getting it from a toy, right? So how do you explain that? to parents who are maybe more reluctant? Well, I would wonder first and foremost, why he was made to continue if he wasn't really into it. Oh, cause it, <laughs> he had to continue until his bar mitzvah and then he could quit. Okay. We both had to perform. Got it. I mean, you know, look, I think balance is incredibly important. Having consistent rules in your household is important as well having clear and concise expectations. I think also being able to recognize your child's strengths and nurture those is also incredibly important. Do parents have their kids participate in activities that are not very rewarding? Yeah, all the time. You know, I'm a big fan of trying things and seeing if you like it. 
But what about like swimming lessons, for instance? That is something that a lot of kids don't like, but also that's health and safety. Yeah, no, something like a swimming lesson, I would say, is non negotiable. You need to have water safety. Exactly. Yeah, but you know, do they have to continue swimming if they hate it once they know how to do it? No, no, they don't. But that might be a situation where you have to have extrinsic rewards because it's not something that the child likes to do. And maybe they have some sensory stuff having to do with water and all of that and getting their hair wet. But it's also figuring out the balance, like you said. And if it does have to do with health and safety, then you do have to maybe have some incentives in place. Yeah. I am a big fan of incentives if they're used responsibly and, you know, at the right times, particularly for kiddos with ADHD, because again, you know, as I said, the long away reward is not rewarding for them. Mm -mm. So something that I think parents can do as well is to try to figure out what non-tangible things are rewarding for their kiddo, because those are potentially things that can be utilized more frequently than a toy, especially for something like homework, which is consistent and has to happen often. An example would be my son loves to make art. And so, you know, if I can get him through X amount of time doing something that he really doesn't like to do, then he can be rewarded with, we're going to make art together for the same amount of time. Or, you know, you trade minutes of learning how to type for minutes of Minecraft, things like that. Which makes sense. So going back to the social impacts yes, really quickly, I just wanted to talk about middle and high school girl drama. <laughs> My favorite thing to talk about. And how girls with ADHD are impacted by the girl drama for different reasons. It's a thing. Yes, it's absolutely a thing. And I think girls with both inattentive and the hyperactive impulsive symptoms fall victim to this in equal numbers for different reasons, right? So if you're inattentive, you're not paying attention necessarily to what other people are doing. You could miss nuanced social cues because of this, which can cause a disconnect that could potentially lead to increased conflict, you know, or less obvious issues such as, you know, being ignored, rumors, cyberbullying, things that are not as overt or obvious. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, also if a girl is impulsive, it can for sure negatively impact her relationship with peers. If she's bossy, if she's interrupting other people, um, if she's monopolizing conversations, if she's unable to, you know, reciprocate conversation or reciprocate interest, it, she may appear selfish, self-centered. You know, there are other repercussions, you know, exclusion, you know, when they're little from birthday parties, but also from social gatherings in middle and high school, a lack of play dates when they're little, you know, even overt criticism, name calling, things like that. You know, she's labeled bossy. What does that do to her self-esteem? That is a huge part of adolescence and it really can impact school. I mean, I know with clients, when there is some girl drama, I've had kids where you can see their grades, everything just come to a halt because that takes over everything. This is a good segue to talking about the symptom of ADHD. It's being talked about more now than it has before, but less so than the symptoms of focus and impulsivity. But the emotional dysregulation 
that comes along with having a brain that is actually about three years behind a neurotypical child. Having your brain be three years behind means that the frontal lobe in particular is even less developed than would be expected at any kind of developmental age. As we know, the frontal lobe continues to develop even up to age 25. This contributes to high emotional reactivity, what I would equate to a Ferrari engine with bicycle brakes. Mm, A Ferrari engine with bicycle brakes. Not going to work. It's not going to work well. (laughs) No, you're strong out the gate, but it's hard to pull back. Mm -hmm. Girls who have this kind of high emotional reactivity or dysregulation are often called sensitive and moody. And they start to think that there's something wrong with them because of that. Yeah. We've talked about this insatiability because I know a lot of parents feel this, that my kid is just insatiable. It's never enough time. It's never enough of something. And there's the science behind it right there. Having some conversations about it is important. And so, but just to follow up on that, it doesn't go away. When a kiddo hits puberty, 30% of kids with ADHD get better, 30% of kids with ADHD get worse, and 30% stay the same. And we never really know what's going to happen. I did not know that, Julie. There's no predictor? Not that I've seen. And you know, hey, I could be wrong. New research comes out all the time, but... Right. But so far. So far. Two-thirds of kids with ADHD will have some sort of shift either for the better or for the worse during puberty. Mm -hmm. And so when that leads into adulthood, what does that look like? I know you've had a lot of experience in your work working with people who are females that have ADHD that have also been diagnosed much later in life. What does that look like? Especially if you're a woman listening right now going, hmm. Mm -hmm. So it looks a lot like you know, what I talked about earlier in terms of overcompensating for things that you struggle with, multiple alarms to get places on time, turning things in late still and, you know, high levels of worrying because turning things in late in a job is not okay (laughs) most of the time. You know, you need to be able to manage your time, but it's this almost constant worry in the back of your mind that you're going to miss something. Like even if it's on your calendar, even if it's on multiple calendars, sometimes you just miss it unless, you know, you do X, Y, and Z. Underestimating how long something's going to take. Still, you know, this sort of follows through from when you're in school and have to do large projects. You know, when you have a large project at work, not being able to estimate how long it's going to take you. And not only that, but being unable to break it up into parts to be able to get to the end result, which, you know, is incredibly stressful, incredibly stressful. (laughs) Procrastination, putting things off to the very last minute. Look, a certain level of stress is healthy, right? We want that fire under us to be able to get our stuff done. But when you procrastinate to the extent that you are staying up till 4.30 in the morning, (laughs) trying to finish something that's due, that's not very healthy. And hard. Everything feels really hard. And I think that feeling of inadequacy 
from your childhood when you were looking around your classroom and thinking to yourself, why is this so easy for everyone else? It remains when you're an adult. You're looking around and you're like, everybody is so competent. They're so able to adult better than I can. It just perpetuates the feelings of, again, inadequacy, insecurity, imposter syndrome. There are all of these things that are, quote, wrong with me. You know, how could anybody think I was competent at what I do? I know the truth. Hmm. So if you're a parent or are a woman, a female listening to this episode, what should they be looking out for? If you have an inkling, I always say parents know first that something's up, but they may not know what, and a lot of people are telling them everything's fine. So what should parents have a lookout for? So I think the emotional dysregulation in girls is a really big one. Like I said, that is often sort of pushed away as a kiddo is sensitive or moody. So if you're seeing things like emotional reactivity at home or getting reports from school that it's happening or you're observing it between interactions your kid is having, that's something to look out for. I think, you know, a kiddo who is missing things in conversation, constantly saying, what? <laughs> or I don't know what I'm doing, needing a ton of repetition, particularly for like multi-step directions. You look at the executive functioning in that way as well. Can they sequence something? Are they doing things out of order? Are they staring into space? <laughs> Do they need multiple breaks during a time-constrained task? Like you tell them that you're going to work on something for 45 minutes and after seven and a half minutes, they can't tolerate focusing anymore on it. They need to take a break. Also, a girl who others see as like a social butterfly, for example, constantly talking, talking, talking to her friends, that's potentially a symptom of, you know, being impulsive or hyperactive, even though we classify it as, oh, she's just chatty. Mm. <laughs> Again, looking at time management, looking at organization, you know, look at your kiddo's backpack, have her teacher look at her desk. What does it look like? What does her room look like? Can she organize her things? Can she organize her thoughts? Again, we go back to sequencing when she's telling a story, is it in order? Things like that. Yeah. It's all there and important to just listen and trust your gut. Yeah, I agree. Julie, this has been so wonderful. How can our audience get in touch with you? My email address is Dr. Kaplan, D-R-C-A-P-L-A-N at la-cia.org. Perfect. Thank you for being willing to share your email with our audience. No problem. And hopefully our audience will reach out to you and connect with you. And again, you do assessments of all sorts. Yeah, all sorts. Diagnosing the ADHD. We're absolutely comprehensive assessments. So I try to look at a kiddo, all parts of them. And adults as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Julie, for being here. Thank you for having me. Will you do our signature sign-off and say, have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties. <laughs> Perfect. Yay, have a great week. <laughs>